Hello, I'm Rebecca, and today I will be reading from James 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen. Thank you, Rebecca. Hey, everybody. How are you today? Excellent. Excellent. Good to see you all. Uh, before we get started, quick question, brief survey. Uh, who in this room, by show of hands, uh, listened to Christmas music this week? Wow, pretty impressive. All right, we're going to take one step further. Who has a tree up at their house? Yeah, Becca. I only know that because she told me that yesterday. <laughs> uh, Tis the season. Happy holidays, I guess, everybody. Um, speaking of holidays, uh, on Monday night, after we put our sugared up kids to bed, I sat at the kitchen island uh, mowing down on their Halloween candy, which is... <laughs> one of the better perks of being a father. And as I was eating candy and sort of decompressing from a night of cold, wet rain, uh, trick-or-treating with the kids, uh, I read this article from The Atlantic. Uh, the author, Emily Oster, writes in this article about how during the pandemic, we all made significant choices for how we would individually and collectively navigate a complex time in global history with extremely limited information and often information that felt at odds with each other. And in this article, you might not be able to see it, the title of the article is Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty. So as I was reading her article, I was thinking back over the last couple of years. I was thinking about the time when I was up in the Cascade Mountain Range with a 40-pound backpack on my back, hiking up a mountain through snow, uh, and that even though I was out in the middle of nowhere with a group of three other guys, uh, every time I would see somebody coming down the trail well ahead of me, we would all stop collectively, and as we were struggling to breathe, put masks on in the, the mountain range, because that's what you're supposed to do. Um, uh, I was thinking about the times where we would have these, these now in retrospect, silly safety precautions of, um, of building six-foot uh, round hoops and putting them out in the front lawn to keep social distancing and putting up a plexiglass drum shield to preach behind even though we were outside because we just were doing our best. Um, I was thinking about the time, this, that, you know, those are kind of silly. I was thinking about times where it actually affected me negatively. There was one time where uh, last year my mom had a significant birthday and we rented out a private room at a restaurant where you had to show your vaccine card to be able to get in. And I ran up to the door, I was a little bit late. 
uh, it was a private room with its own entrance. So as I get to the door, I could see my seat is literally five feet in front of me. I show them my vaccine card, but I left my mask in my car and they wouldn't let me walk five feet to my seat. I had to walk three blocks back to get a mask. You guys remember this? Is anybody feeling traumatized already? Okay, good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you guys. In hindsight, in hindsight, many of these precautions were, were useless and had serious negative effects on people. Student test scores are at a historic low is what we're discovering right now in studies because kids were not in the classroom. People were not able to be with their loved ones as they died or they couldn't gather to grieve when people had passed away having funerals. Loneliness and addiction went through the roof. Family members were estranged from each other over pandemic or vaccine choices. The effects of the pandemic were sweeping. And Emily Oster writes in this article, she says this, given the amount of uncertainty, almost every position was taken on every topic. And on every topic, someone was eventually proved right and someone else was proved wrong. In some instances, the right people were right for the wrong reasons. In other instances, they had a prescient understanding of the available information. We have to put these fights aside and declare a pandemic amnesty. The standard saying is that those who forget history are doomed to repeat it, but dwelling on the mistakes of history can lead to a repetitive doom loop as well. Let's acknowledge that we made complicated choices in the face of deep uncertainty and then try to work together to build back and move forward. Seems like a totally reasonable take in my mind. But a couple of days after this article was posted, I saw that a friend of mine had a very strong, angry opinion about this article that she decided to air on the internet, which is weird. Who does that, right? <laughs> and then I saw another friend of mine who had another angry opinion about this article, but a very different angry opinion. And these two became furious, not at the article, but at each other as they went back and forth. Both of these people are arguing about what was and is the wisest way for us to live in a pandemic and what is the wisest way for us to live beyond a pandemic. And it got heated. And so here we are in November 2022, three years after the initial rumblings of a coronavirus that was, that was popping up in China, still fighting about what is right and what is wrong, still fighting over what was wise and what is foolish, still getting heated about vaccines and masks and everything else. I think about these moments in my own life over the last few years where I would come to a breaking point and I would totally lose my temper at people who are some of my closest and safest relationships. And I would test the safety with an explosion of anger, like with all of the tension of decision-making and controversy, it would come to a head and I'd lose it. Is that okay to say? To admit? And if you're over the pandemic controversies, like all of this is old news, like just a quick reminder, we have an election on Tuesday. And there are strong feelings about that election that are in this room and that those feelings are all over the map. Everything in our world today feels like it has the power to divide. A quick reference to the price of gas or milk suddenly stirs up feelings. If you talk about a sports team, it'll invariably bring a bunch of controversy as it has with our local soccer franchise. 
Every time I hear Michael Jackson or Kanye West on the radio or in public places, I'm like, is this okay? Are we, are we listening to this guy anymore? Nobody's with me on that? Okay, <laughs> move on. And so admittedly, I'm coming into this, serm- this sermon a little bit hot uh, because I want to just generate as much anxiety in the room as I can <laughs> before we talk about the book of James. Today, we're in James chapter three. This fall, we are studying um, this first century letter that was written by Jesus' brother to the church that was dispersed all over the known world at the time. And in this series, we are taking the potent and often heavy-handed words of James, and we're letting the weight of these words take us into what we're calling a robust discipleship, something that is not surface level or superficial, but something that actually gets to the core, to the root of who we are. The words of this letter are meant to be like a fire that refines followers of Jesus. And in the third chapter of James, we are now examining two kinds of wisdom. One of the kinds of wisdom that James talks about is is a false wisdom, literally in quotation marks. And another is viewed as a true wisdom or what he calls heavenly wisdom. And in a country that is so divided and at uh, at each other's throats, the question is, how can people of Jesus show a different way? What does it look like for us to live wisely toward one another and then by extension to the world around us? As we've walked through James, we've, confronted, we've been confronted with a lot of difficult issues. He's spoken to us right off the bat about suffering and about ungodly wealth. He's confronted our, our tendency to self-deception and hypocrisy. He calls out favoritism and cliquishness in the church. Last week, Jace's sermon about um, our speech, man, that was powerful. That was fire. My six-year-old was watching it, and he was getting a lot out of it. It was awesome. And today, James is confronting yet another insidious corruption that is often at work within the hearts of believers. He opens in verse 13 with this. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, the deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And so as has been a theme throughout this whole letter so far, James doesn't have time for people who are all talk and no action. Who is the wise person? you will see who the wise person is by observing their life. As Jesus says in Luke 7.35, he says that wisdom will be justified by her children. You will be able to tell when somebody is acting or living wisely based on the outcome of their life. But then in verse 14, he goes on, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And so here is the fruit of a false wisdom, of wisdom-ish, wisdom light, diet wisdom, wisdom in quotation marks. And at the root of this faux wisdom, we, it's described here in, as a very specific term. He calls out bitter envy and selfish ambition as the root of a vile fake wisdom that seeks to divide and destroy, particularly in the church. James uses this Greek word, erethea, that we translate as selfish ambition. 
And this is actually a very uncommon word uh, in ancient literature. Before the writing of James, we only have really one example of this word being used in the writing of Aristotle. And he used this word to describe the corrupt, partisan, and self-serving dealings of politicians. One scholar defines this word as the service of a party, a party spirit, feud, and faction. And so the root sin that James is confronting here in the church is a spirit of jealousy and partisanship. It's a spirit of bitterness and envy, and it's connected to factional feuding in the community of the believers, which is such a weird thing for him to bring up because we're immune to that, right? We don't do that. It is not a stretch at all to connect the message of today's text to the partisan division and fighting that the church in America has been slogging through for the last three years, be it over pandemic response or issues of race and racism or Christian nationalism or a million other culture war issues. Pick, your, pick whichever one is your favorite. And so what we have seen become the norm in churches as they fought over every conceivable controversy is precisely what the book of James is calling out in this text. Bitter jealousy, it could be better translated as a harsh zeal. The combination of this harsh zeal, like this fired up, excited harshness, the combination of that with political ambition, it produces what James calls vile practices and evil. Such people can't stand to see others in positions of influence that they desire for themselves. They are overcome by another person in power who is standing for something that is different than what they value. It's an inner frenzy that ends in a community split. There's this old story, it's like an old fable, of two men who live in a certain city. One man, one man is envious and the other man is covetous. And one day, the ruler of the city gathers these two men to himself, and he promises to grant them any wish, but there's a catch. The person who speaks first will be granted exactly what he asks for, while the other man will be granted double what the first man asked for. So the ruler asks the envious man, what would you like me to give you? And this puts the envious man in a quandary. He wanted something great for himself and he could have anything that he wished. But at his core, he knew that he would be upset and unsatisfied because he would know that somebody else has more than him. And so after thinking for a few minutes, he arrived at his wish. He responds to the ruler of the city, my wish is to have one of my eyes plucked out. <laughs> it's dark, right? It's like Hans Christian Andersen stuff right there. So this bitter, this bitter envy and selfish ambition, it leads to a self-deception. You see, these things that we get hung up on and that, that drive us, they often begin as legitimate concerns about perceived or real issues. But when the concern is fed not by humility and prayer, but rather by selfish ambition and envy, it turns into a false wisdom that is divisive. James says, do not boast about it or deny the truth. In other words, he's saying, stop claiming that your bitter concerns are connected to God's wisdom. Stop gossiping about your leaders uh, or that person in your small group. Stop whining and grumbling. This is not from God. Scholar N.T. Wright says this in his commentary on James. This may well be a word for our day. 
when so many people across the world are fed up with the way their country is run, with the way their police force behaves, with the way the global economy functions, and so on, often these criticisms are fully justified, as they certainly would have been in James's own day. But the challenge then for God's people is to be able to tell the truth about the way the world is and about the way wicked people are behaving without becoming someone whose appearance of wisdom consists of being able to find a cutting word to say about everyone and everything. This manifestation of concern, of, quote, wisdom, that's how the world works. That's how our media functions. That's how our politicians speak. But it doesn't carry the accent of heaven. True wisdom comes from God. And fake wisdom, it comes from hell. James says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This kind of wisdom is earthly, meaning it's like fallen and natural. This wisdom is unspiritual, which means that it's from the basest part of our flesh. When you think unspiritual, think of like him saying, it's like a caveman, it's a lizard brain, it's animalistic. And beyond that, he says that this wisdom is demonic. Last week, as we talked about the tongue, he said that the tongue is a restless evil that is set on fire by hell. And if that's the case, then this pseudo-wisdom is the product of demons. It's authored by Satan. And shockingly, it's, a, it's at work within the church. Pastor and theologian R. Kent Hughes sums it up like this. He says, James's message is simple. There is no place in the church for pride, jealousy, or selfish ambition. Anyone who says pseudo-wisdom is okay is an unwitting messenger of the devil. We must allow no place for harshness, criticism, or clever comments masquerading as wisdom. And sadly, there's like a parade of examples of such fallen wisdom in the lives of leaders in the American church today. People who are driven by selfish ambition, who lead with this, this pseudo-wisdom, pride and jealousy and self-promotion, Christian leaders who build a brand but don't work on their character, many leaders in the church today who are driven by partisan political power rather than a humble commitment to the truth. Such leaders, they claim to be wise, but James would say that this is empty boasting and it denies the truth. And here's the thing, church, we are all implicated in this. We are the ones who subscribe to these leaders' podcasts, who give to their ministries, who take in what they say and, and, and receive it gladly. We are the ones who are so impressed with their success that is based on fallen metrics. We are the ones who empower those who lead with fallen, even demonic wisdom. And James would say, this is a false wisdom, guys. This is something that is masquerading as wise, but it's actually foolish. It's actually worse than that. It's even demonic. But then what does godly wisdom look like? What is the wisdom that comes from heaven? Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. I mean, what a beautiful verse, right? What an incredible list this is. True wisdom that comes from heaven has the flavor of heaven. 
James lists seven characteristics of what heavenly wisdom looks like worked out in God's people. We're just gonna go through it real quick. First of all, he says that it is pure. And he says very specifically, it is first pure. Think about that word. The number one character, characteristic of a heavenly wisdom is purity. It's undefiled. It's morally uncorrupted. This work connotes, connotes this idea that there's no mixture in God's wisdom. It's not, first of all, pragmatic or the lesser of two evils. It's wholly devoted to the way of Jesus from the beginning to the end. Later in James chapter 4, verse 8, he writes, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. Get rid of your mixed motives, you dub your double-mindedness, your ambivalence, your lesser of two evils, or making allowances. Instead, <clears throat> instead be committed and pure in living toward Jesus. From this purity that marks a life that is full of God's wisdom, it flows the rest of the list. If you want to live a life of wisdom, start here with this question. Am I pure? When I look at my actions, my motivations, my speech, how I treat my family or how I act at work, is my life pure or is there a mixture? Next on the list is peace-loving or being peaceable. And this is not a passive peace that avoids any sort of conflict, nor is it a frenzied desire to, you know, frantically control the situation and make sure everyone is good so that there's no conflict in the room. But the person who is peaceable is a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. This is about having a peaceful spirit. It's being able to stay fully connected to who you are, your identity in Jesus, who God has made you to be, and stay fully connected to the person who is in front of you in an environment of conflict. In today's language, we would describe the peaceable person as being well-differentiated. Rather than stirring up conflict and controversy, they are, as Ephesians 4 says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Or in the language of Romans 14, they make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Or again in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Next, James says that uh, heavenly wisdom is gentle. This person is not quick to fight or to defend, or to hurt others. They are not so concerned about whether or not their reputation is being harmed, but they are meek. It, it carries this idea of harnessing your power and keeping it subdued for the sake of the other. In Proverbs 15:1, we read, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The gentle person makes allowances for the ignorance or even foolishness of other people and is kind in their perspective. They do not assume the worst in others. They do not assume morally corrupt or evil motivations in the person in front of them, but rather believe the best. The next word, submissive. Everybody okay with that word? Nobody's uncomfortable with submissive, right? The NIV translates it submissive. Other translations might translate it as um, considerate, or open to reason. And essentially what this word is about is, is being teachable or being open-hearted. So question, how, how do you respond when you don't get your way? 
When a decision is made and you're opposed to it, do you submit to the decision or do you grumble and say, I would have done it differently? That's not my fault. Or worse, do you actively sabotage the decision? As a member of this church, do you trust your leaders to lead you well? Are you willing to submit yourself to the authority that God has put in the pastors or your life group leaders? Or are you planning to leave the moment that someone says or does something that steps on your toes? Are you open to being wrong about something? Like, or are you totally entrenched that your way of thinking is absolutely right? Again, a teachable spirit isn't anxious. An openness to correction or insight from other people is true spiritual wisdom because I can't see all the components of every issue that is in my life. I have blind spots. Wisdom leads me to submit myself to the leadership of other people because they might see things in a way that I cannot. I have a limited life experience and my life experience, it shapes who I am, but it, it often misses how other people experience the world. I need to be submitted to the leadership of people who are different from me. A couple more, right? Full of mercy and good fruits. L wise living is full of mercy and good fruits. Here, James actually pivots us to active verbs. He says that, that this kind of wisdom, it's not a general disposition. It's not a feeling. It is living out the wisdom of heaven through active mercy and compassion. It's more than willing the good for others. It is rolling up your sleeves and working for the good of other people. And so James would say, what good is it to have strong and quote, wise opinions about how things should work, but you don't do anything about it? What good is it to consume the news and punditry and have really strong feelings about what should or shouldn't be happening and then go no further than grumbling or fretting? The wise are fruitful. They're involved. They live out the wisdom of God. Next, heavenly wisdom is impartial. It's steady. It doesn't bend towards power or defeating one's opponents. It operates from a consistent principle that doesn't bend. It doesn't make moral allowances for my team while demonizing the other team. Such wise people are able to remain impartial because they fix their eyes on Jesus. They don't get locked into, you know, a donkey or an elephant. They instead only serve the lamb who was slain. Next, and finally, godly wisdom is sincere. Or more literally, it's without hypocrisy. It's authentic. It's not a show or play acting, but it flows from the reality of who you are, what you believe, and what you value. Living with authenticity is about integrating all of your life so that you, you show up as the same person in every space. Your secret life is aligned with your private life, which is worked out and demonstrated with total consistency in your public life. And so sincerity means that the wisdom doesn't change to suit the environment or whoever else is in the room. It's consistent because it flows from who we really are. No masks and no pretense. It's a beautiful list, right? Imagine leaders who lead with this kind of wisdom, such humility, and as God's people, this is how we all strive to live. In verse 18, he says, peacemakers who sow in peace 
reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers change the environment around them. Peacemakers, by definition, create peace. And James says that in the environment of peace, in that space, they produce a harvest of righteousness. You see, peacemakers don't just diffuse the conflict. They produce justice. They contribute to the shalom of the world. Peacemaking is not passive, it is active. But righteousness and justice can only grow in a climate of peace, which means something important. Uh, this, This is where it gets a little bit heavy. The way that we pursue righteousness matters. Heavenly wisdom is as much about Christian means as it is about Christian ends. You see, you cannot achieve Christian ends with non-Christian means. You cannot get godly outcomes through sinful practices. You cannot get godly policies or practices or outcomes in your community by, by bending to evil and wicked systems and people. If you do, it actually shows that the seemingly godly wisdom is actually corrupted. It's false wisdom. And the aim of the church is not for us to go out and transform the world. We are not commissioned by Jesus to Christianize society. Rather, the aim of the church is to be transformed by Jesus for the sake of the world. If our goal is to make American policies reflect biblical principles, then we will be tempted to use broken levers of power in America to achieve those ends. And as we participate in this broken system, often in ungodly ways, we discover over time that we are being more formed by the system than we are formed by Christ. But if our goal is rather to be transformed by Jesus for the sake of the world, and then to go out and make disciples of other people around us, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us, then we will be formed by Christ, and we will have influence in our world the way that he did. You guys with me? Making sense? All right, here's where I might get myself fired. In this church, we have a range of social and political views and beliefs. And I actually think that that's a good thing because again, everybody comes at these things from different places and different perspectives. And we can be made better by having the humble disposition of being able to receive from each other. If you lean to the left and you find yourself being really concerned about, for example, issues of race and racism and justice in our country, I want you to know that God is also very concerned about those things. He cares deeply about them. But if your concern leads you to destroy a city or spit in the face of a police officer or to support those who do, then candidly, what the Bible would say is that you are being shaped by a false wisdom. If you're a right-leaning person and you have a deep concern, for example, again, just a concern for the unborn, Know that God is with you in that concern. He cares about the unborn. But if your concern leads you to underhanded politics and policies, if it leads you to support politicians who actively work with dirty tricks and who do not act with integrity in order to achieve your end, again, the Bible would candidly say, 
you are being formed by a false wisdom. And that is not in any way uh, to, to, to throw judgment on any of us for the thing, like we understand that the world is complex, it is difficult, our motivations are not always corrupted, but I think that what, what the Bible would say is that we have to be very careful that we do not get sucked in to a worldly false wisdom. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. If in your concern about whatever issue you feel strongly about, if in that you find yourself judging your brothers and sisters or slandering about them or gossiping about them, there is a fallen wisdom that you are being formed by. If your beliefs about politics or social issues leads you to cut off friends or family members or to leave a church, this is not wisdom from heaven. And I know that I just painted with a really broad brush, and I hope that you hear my heart in this. But the truth is, over the last few years, the church in America was internally torn apart by this earthy, unspiritual, and demonic faux wisdom that is rooted in bitterness and selfish ambition. And James is calling the people of God to another way as we move forward. He's calling us to a robust discipleship. One that is first of all pure and then peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. As we participate in an election this week, all of us, well, if you choose to vote, we're gonna be voting across the board in different ways. But we must be heavenly people. We must lead the way as peacemakers. As we gather with the weird uncle who believes in conspiracy theories around the Thanksgiving table, can we be those who are pure and humble and sincere? As we look beyond the walls of this church, as we pray for our city morning after morning, may we pursue righteousness and justice for those around us in a climate of peace. May we, the church, be a non-anxious presence in an anxious world. May we show godly wisdom by our good lives. Amen? Will you stand with me? We're gonna go ahead and move into ministry time. I'm gonna invite the Burnettes to come up and lead us. Um, as they're coming up, I wanna say, <laughs> I said a lot uh, this morning. And if you wanna talk about anything that I said this morning, I'll be right over here. Um, and we can talk about it. Or if you'd rather send an email, that's fine. Send it to steve at vancouvervineyard.com and you'll, you can receive a response promptly. Um, I love you guys. Let's move into ministry time.